You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. This time. All right. Hey, good morning, guys. Good to be with you. Happy 4th of July. It's the birthday of our nation. Can we celebrate that just for a moment? Hey, uh, uh, just real quick, I want to say special thanks. Uh, find out who's all in the room here real quick. Uh, if you've served in any branch of military or your family has, if you've uh, police, first responders, uh, any government uh, institution, actually, would you just stand just for a moment right now if you or your family have served in any capacity? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as well, just for a moment, I'm going to ask now if you're a teacher or a minister, would you stand, or a first responder, would you stand just for a moment? Teachers, ministers, thank you very much. Thank you, first responders, thank you very much. Um, and the reason why I did that is because it's been a tough time over the last uh, few years uh, for those folks involved. And so um, we do have a great country, a lot of challenges in our country. Um, but um, what makes the United States so great is this, and I'll read to you a passage uh, from the Declaration of Independence. Uh, in 1776, July 4th, uh, this was uh, put into action um, before Continental Congress with unanimous uh, vote uh, that this would be our, our declaration. Um, freedom is what we're all about in our country. Freedom is what Jesus is all about. And uh, we're going to learn about some of that today. But I want to read to you this little section. It says this in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. If you've got one of these nearby, it's on page 37. And um, you're not going to find these so readily available. Boy, is it good to read through this stuff. Um, even looking at the uh, amendments of the Constitution are fantastic for us. Uh, but let me read the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are, help me out, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, at the heart of uh, our founding fathers was the idea that all people should receive that. Um, now, you know, and I know it took a long time for us to see more of that. However, this is written into our very foundational documents as a country. What makes America great is this, is there has been and uh, there still is a foundational thought among the people of the United States of America that believe that freedom is something that is not just given by the government, but it's given to you by God. That God gives you and every mankind, all of mankind, the freedom to pursue a life that they want. Liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. And so that's what makes us great. Um, but what makes us not so great is infringing upon these rights and destroying these things um, but I need you to know that. Now, I, I did this in the first service. I'll do it in the second. Um, but how many of you perhaps recall the uh, Pledge of Allegiance? Would you raise your hand just for a moment? Okay, how many of you would be so bold and brave just to come forward and then just recite the Pledge of Allegiance? How many of you are um, 
currently or actively in school? Would you raise your hand for me? Anybody? High school kids, kind of, college, okay. Uh, in our first service, we had a number of high school kids, and I asked them if they said the Pledge of Allegiance. They said no. no nobody was doing the Pledge of Allegiance. So I thought today we might do that, okay? So you can stand to your feet. We're going to do the Pledge of Allegiance. This ties into the message. Um, and here's what I want to share, share with you as we're looking at this. Um, this edition, uh, we'll pull it up. It was in 1954. In response to the communist threat of the times, President Eisenhower encouraged Congress to add these words. The words are, does anybody know what they are? Under God. That's exactly what it is. Um, so today's message is themed around the idea that you need to realize that the Christian lives under God. Citizen of this country, uh, is, we should think about every nation is under God. He's above all things. So let's say it together. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with life and justice for all. Amen. You be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray for our country. We pray for the Christian to live not simply as a citizen of the United States of America, but to live as a citizen from a heavenly country. Lord, ultimately, the truth is this, is that we're all under you. You are above all. You're above every nation, every country, every state, every power. There is no name like the name of our King Jesus. And so today, we as Christians, American citizens, submit to you under God, in the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Well, hey, um, John chapter 7 is where we're going to be today, and Jesus is, um, he has been in a uh, Jerusalem, and there's been a massive festival, uh, according to Jewish historians, uh, every male Jew was required to go to this kind of festival. Remember, uh, backing up, Jesus' brothers had told them, you need to come with us, uh, you know, there's some people, there's some fallout, your popularity's fading a little bit. Maybe you come to Jerusalem, do some miracles, uh, you know, prove yourself. And remember, uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters actually had a hard time believing that he was actually God. It was later, after the death, burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his family gets on board. Now, Mary was and Joseph were all along fully convinced Jesus was the Christ. Uh, they had been appeared by an angel and had told them in a dream and an encounter, and so they knew very clearly. And there was perhaps some speculation and frustration from the siblings of Jesus because, I mean, how many of you would like the idea that your brother is just perfect? Like, he just is always perfect. He's always right. So it's frustrating. Jesus doesn't go to this festival publicly with them. He decides that he's going to go on his own time. He's going to take the private route. And he waits about midweek through the festival. It's a week-long festival. Some of you guys, I know you go to like Country Thunder and you like, yeah, everybody pulls up their RVs and everybody's got their festival outside and it's like rocking and rolling. This is a, a Christian version of Country Thunder, okay? And this is a massive gathering out in the middle of around the outskirts of Jerusalem and there's families and friends and food and festivities and it's fun, but... Finally, Jesus shows up middle of the week. 
it's fall time. And folks are there because they're celebrating and remembering the providence of God, the provision of God, how he led the people out of uh, uh, Egypt and provided for them. And so it's a season of like, like thankfulness. Um, so Jesus shows up and then he starts teaching. And there's controversy about Jesus. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Some people think he's demonic. Some people think he's amazing. Some people are, are really after to arrest him. Some are trying to kill him. And so verse 25, we're going to see a walk through uh, verse 25 through 36. And uh, I'll show you, first of all, the crowd's questions Jesus. It says, verse 25, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Uh, who is they? They is the authorities. Uh, folks in the crowd know that some, some people want Jesus dead. Verse 26, and here, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's obvious confusion. There's obviously controversy. Um, earlier in verses 20, if you look back in your Bible, uh, you'll see uh, that the crowd actually accused Jesus of being demonically possessed. And then they said something like they knew nothing about the idea that people were trying to kill Jesus. Jesus is uh, uh, controversial and uh, he's being questioned. And so we read verse 27. Uh, the crowd questions Jesus further and says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Just note that. So basically, I think it's more of a question, but uh, I mean, do they really know where he comes from? Uh, those of you who know your Bible, the Bible tells us Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There you go. Um, they're probably confused that he was uh, from Nazareth because he did live in Nazareth. And uh, he is a carpenter's son and they're confused whether he's truly the Christ or just a man. And then they go on to say that no one really knows where he's going to come from, which is really interesting. Those of you, you know Christmas time, we look back sometimes at prophecies. And according to Micah 5.2, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So these guys don't have a really good grasp of the Bible. They don't understand the Old Testament very well. They're missing out and understanding the prophetic scriptures about who Jesus is, his origins, and his identity. So let's see what Jesus does about this. Verses 28 through 29, this is the response. Uh, Jesus explains himself through preaching. It says in verse 28, we're just going to look at the first two little uh, phrases right there and we're going to stop. So it says, verse 28, So Jesus, help me out, pro proclaimed as he taught in the temple. All right, let's stop right there. Uh, proclaim is the word in the Greek. It means krazo. Uh, and it's like a guttural yell. It's kind of where we get the word uh, croak. Like, I don't want to try to do the, the ribbit, but you can imagine. Ribbit. Like, it's, a, it's just an awkward, like, deep, guttural. The word is crazo. It's where we get the word croak. It sounds like something a little bit more like a shout from, a, from deep within. It's the same word that's used when Jesus uh, healed the two blind men back in Matthew's gospel. It says that Jesus passed on from there and there were two blind men following him crying out 
crossing out, yelling, have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, it's, a, it's a shout. Jesus is a, a fiery preacher. He, he's not just simply soft monotones. That's not what's going on here in the temple. He's a bit fired up. We've seen him in the temple before fired up. If you remember when he drove, threw over the uh, exchange tables, the money tables, and then braided a whip in the back and then starts driving people out. Like Jesus is intense. He's just not meek and mild, little tender, sweet Jesus. He's very, very tough, but incredibly soft heart. So what is he doing in the temple? He's alarming. He's yelling at them. What does he say? Let's read it. it says, you know, he says, you know me. And you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. What is he saying? What he's saying is he's accusing them, the religious people, and those in the crowd that are scoffing him or mocking him or not believing in him, saying, you guys don't even know me. Uh, you think you know me. You think, you, you think I'm just a mere man from Nazareth. Well, it is true that he was from Nazareth, but he's not born in Nazareth. And it is true that he was born in Bethlehem, but they didn't even get that part. They missed that part. They should have known. Uh, so Jesus goes further, though, and tells them, you don't, you don't know uh, me very well. And then furthermore, he accuses them and saying, you don't know God at all. Verse 28 says that. And him you do not know is what Jesus says. So what's the response? Uh, what's the crowd going to do about this? Verse 30, we see two different responses of a crowd. How many of you have ever been to a big crowd before, a big baseball game here recently, over the summertime maybe, or maybe a football game in the fall in previous times? You know and I know crowds can turn. Some people in the crowd, it's like uh, everything's going great, and all of a sudden something happens and the crowd shifts. Um, this is what happens with Jesus. There's different uh, responses in the crowd. Let's look at verse 30 through 32, and we'll see two different responses in the crowd. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him. Why? Because Jesus told them, you guys don't even know me. So they're getting frustrated. But then the scripture tells us, but no one laid a hand on him. Why is that? Well, it says, because his hour had not yet come. What's going on? There's a bigger picture going on here. God's uh, moving Jesus along and Jesus is following along according to a divine timetable. The exact details of his life, the exact details of his death have all been prophesied. He's literally walking into fulfillment of prophecies in every day at this point in time. Verse 31, we see another response. It says, yet many of the people believed in him and they said, well, when the Christ appears, he will... Will he do more signs than, than this man has done? In other words, they're very aware. Jesus has done some pretty incredible things. Uh, he fed the multitudes. He healed the man that was lame at the pool of Bethesda. He's done some, he's turned water to wine. Jesus has done some miraculous things that nobody can deny. So there's people there in the crowd. They truly believe in Jesus Christ. So one part of the crowd wants him arrested, calling him demonic and crazy. The other crowd saying, no, we think this guy's the Messiah. He's the Christ. So there's debate. There's division. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. 
And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Things are heating up. If you know the story of Jesus' life, you know it doesn't end well. Uh, he is uh, falsely accused. He's, uh, he's uh, beaten. He's mocked. He's spit upon. He's uh, treated like a criminal of all criminals. Uh, he suffers uh, a beating and a trial that's unfair in the middle of the night. And so it begins. The Pharisees are sending officers to arrest Jesus. What happens? Jesus is going to warn them. Watch this. The Pharisees played their cards and Jesus is going to play his. Verse 33 through 34, Jesus and said, I, I, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. A couple things about this phrase. Um, a little longer. If you look at the history timeline of the life of Jesus Christ in this moment, he's actually got six more months before he faces the cross. So when he said a little longer, he means I got about six months left here on earth. I'll be with you a little bit longer, but then when where I'm going, you cannot come. Where is that place? That place is heaven. What's he accusing them of? Unbelief, rejection. You cannot go into heaven because you have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. Nobody gets to heaven unless they believe and receive Jesus Christ. So there's confusion. Check this out, verses 35 through 36 in closing the passage. And then I'll give you some practical points. Verse 35 through 36, there's confusion. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go where we will not find him? They're thinking earthly, not heavenly. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? In other words, they're gonna, he's going to abandon the Jews. He's going to go teach to non-Jewish people. He's going to teach to the outcasts. They had this elitist, racist mentality, and they're asking that question. What's he talking about? Verse 36, and it says, what does he mean by saying, and look how good they quote Jesus, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. What does this mean for, for you and me? What's the practical application of this kind of dialogue that we see between Jesus and a crowd of people? I think it means this, is that you need to realize there will be people that are locked out of heaven. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So here's what we're going to look at. Uh, locked out of heaven, what do you need to know about that and what can you do about it? Let's look at the next slide. There are some people that are locked out of heaven, meaning they're never going to get into heaven unless they do something, unless they believe something. First thing you need to know is that there are no second chances after death. Um, my Catholic friends uh, hold to the idea that there is perhaps a, a second chance, that there is this place called purgatory. That you could, by chance, if you screwed up your life in this life and you didn't really live the life you should have lived, 
you could go to this place and kind of be held for a bit, and maybe if you do some good in that life, or other people do good for you, somehow you could just kind of break through and get to heaven. Um, Jesus told them very clearly, did he not? Where I'm going, you cannot come. He didn't say, now I'm going somewhere and you can't come unless you work yourself out through purgatory. Uh, but no, 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 it was very clear. There are no second chances after death. This is why it's so important that you need to make a clear decision to follow Jesus Christ. If we are living under God, then we have to accept His way, the way He does things, and we're in submission to that. No second chances after death. Um, uh, Hindu friends in Eastern religion and New Age believes in the concept of reincarnation. So it's the idea that when you die, that your spirit or your soul kind of continues on in another life form, depending on how you lived in this life, will determine the kind of life that you're reborn into. So take, for example, if you live this life and you're serving, um, you know, in a good capacity and you have a good standing with community and you're doing good things, well then um, you could be, uh, when you die, your spirit will be into another person. And this is where we even get the idea, he's an old soul. Um, it's the idea that's basically saying the soul lives on forever, and that is true, okay? Christianity teaches that your soul lives forever. Every person on the planet, their soul lives forever. The question is, is where does that soul live? The Bible tells us either heaven or hell. That's it. No, you're not being reincarnated and coming back and in and, and the spirit of another person through another individual, or worse, if under reincarnation, you could be reincarnated as an animal, or you could be reincarnated as a bug, uh, a critter. I remember when I was uh, in high school, we went on this big field trip, and we were walking out across, it was called Toltec Indian Mounds. It was this beautiful Indian burial place, and it was awesome. We're walking across, and the guide it was a kind of a, I don't know what kind of orga, you know, organization or facilitators they had, but obviously this lady did not hold to basic logic, in my opinion. We're walking along, and a bug crosses, and I said, oh, look out, it's a nasty spider. And I stepped on it, and the lady goes, no, no. And I said, what's the problem, ma'am? I, I, I thought it might like crawl on that girl's flip-flop, you know, on her foot. And she said, you have no idea. This could be a, a, a reincarnated spirit child in the bug. And I was like, did you hear that? A spirit child in the bug? Uh, this is the idea within reincarnation. It doesn't really make sense very well. Some of you are like, no, I have cats. You don't know. That's an old soul. I love that cat. You know, uh, or a dog that you really love. It's just the Bible doesn't support that kind of stuff. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says, according to Hebrews 9.27, that everybody is going to die. Let's look at that passage on the screen. Hebrews 9.27 says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So there are no second chances in life. You get one life on earth, then you die, and then you face Jesus Christ. And you go to one or two places, heaven or hell, depending on what you did here and now. So there is appointed, man dies, and then after that faces judgment. Um, the Bible supports this idea too. 
Uh, how about this? The Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, to be absent from the body means to be present with uh, the Lord. So the second I die, the second you die, the second your friends die, they're immediately ushered into, if they're Christians, the presence of the Lord. And they will be with him forever. This is the hope of every memorial service. This is the hope of every funeral. Like, praise God, hallelujah, to be absent from the body. I believe death will be a seamless transition from this life to the next. Like, closing your eyes and opening and saying, everything that is wonderful, beautiful, powerful, great, and godly, it is amplified like I've never seen before. Greater is it than I have ever could imagine. This is heaven. Okay? That is for the Christian to be absent from the body, to be present from the Lord. Or and some of you say, immediately? Yes, immediately. How about when Jesus was on the cross and the criminal, the lawbreaker, the unbeliever, uh, looks to Jesus, places his faith in him. Jesus says, today, my friend, I'll see you in paradise. That day, what did he have to do? Believe. That's all he had to do. How much believe? Not a whole lot, man. He lived a pretty rotten life. He, he was fairly accused, justly accused, and condemned to death. So to be absent from the body means present to the Lord. Number one, what do you need to know about being locked out of heaven? You need to know there are no second chances, ladies and gentlemen. This contradicts the idea of purgatory. It contradicts the idea of reincarnation. And so what does the Bible say? Well, you need to know all who reject Jesus Christ will go to hell. That's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches this idea that it is so very, very important that you need to know if you reject Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is exactly what they were doing. Who are you? You're nobody. You're not the real Messiah. He says, my time's coming. I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. And where I'm going, you cannot come. This is it. They were rejecting Jesus Christ. Uh, what do you believe about hell? Um, ACDC rock band, uh, those of you that are around in the 70s and the 80s, you remember that? Even for the younger folks that played all the skateboard video games and were on the Playstations, that's a popular song still. What's cool about my generation, Gen X, those of you that are Gen X, a lot of our stuff is still cool. I've been wearing Vans since the 80s, man. I should have worn them today. You know, and then like acid wash and the new hairdos. Like, it's all, like, I'm like, yeah, I was there. I was there when it was started, and now you're just recycling it. So, isn't that cool for us guys? Yeah. Those of you that are younger and trying to look all hip and cool, we were there first, man. So, pop culture, the ACDC rock band says this uh, I'm on a highway to hell. It's living easy, loving free, season ticket on a one way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in by my stride. Don't need reason, don't need a rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do than going down. It's party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on a highway to hell. I'm on a highway to hell. I'm on a highway to hell. Uh, two things. One is these folks either don't believe in hell. Or two, they just really don't care. So hell is a real place. Um, in Christianity, unfortunately, it's been damaged tremendously too. Uh, Rob Bell is a, uh, supposedly a Christian, and he's written a book called Love Wins in, in years past, and it's the idea that everybody goes to heaven no matter what happens. Um, that's not what the Bible says. Um, that's called universalism. Jesus isn't a universalist. 
The Bible doesn't affirm universalism. If you reject Jesus Christ in this life before you die, you will go to hell. Um, so what is hell? Hell is eternal conscious punishment. It's the spirit place for the spiritually lost, the unrepentant. It's the place for the demons. It's the place for the devil. It's a place that's described as eternal fire. It's a place described as eternal torment. It's where the wrath of God is being poured out on sin and evil forever. This is not a good place. Uh, in the Bible, they, there's three words that describe it. Uh, Sheol, Hades, and Gehenna. Uh, Jesus uh, describes it. Uh, he describes it in John chapter 3. Look at this Bible verse. John chapter 3, verse 18. He, he, all who reject Jesus will go to hell. He says some good news and some bad news. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever uh, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Um, there's good news that you believe in Jesus, uh, that you will not be condemned. What does condemned mean? It doesn't mean like you struggle with self-confidence. It doesn't mean that you don't have a good self-esteem. It doesn't mean that you're going to experience some feelings of condemnation. Condemn here means a punishment unto death. That's what that means. Condemned to die. The Bible tells us that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will not be condemned, and whoever does not believe is already condemned. So if you reject Jesus Christ right now in this room, you are condemned to death. You have no hope for salvation unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's your ticket out. You don't do a bunch of good works to get to heaven. You receive Jesus Christ because he did all the good work. John 3.36, let's look at this. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So clearly through Scripture, it's a big deal that you do need to realize that this is part of the teachings of Jesus Christ. I read the Pledge of the Allegiance, One Nation Under God. We should be, in a sense, one church, all Christians, under God. So we can't just copy-paste different parts of the Bible and tell you, oh yeah, don't worry about it. You'll just cease to exist. No, no eternal conscious, eternal punishment. Um, that's not true. Number three, you need to know that Jesus is the only way into heaven. Um, this is not uh, d difficult, perhaps, for those of you that read your Bible. This is difficult for those of you that have a lot of good friends, that are morally good people, but they reject Jesus Christ. That is hard. I would say things like, but Lord, they're good people. Um, the Bible tells us exclusively that Jesus is he's the way, the truth, and the what? Life. No one gets to the Father but through Jesus Christ. What's so challenging about our faith, Christianity, is that it, is, uh, it does feel very exclusive. And it is. It's exclusive because we're saying there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. You reject him, you go to hell. You accept him, you go to heaven. It's very exclusive. Here is the good news about Jesus, though. He was incredibly inclusive with all his relationships. All sorts of people that mocked him. I mean, he's praying for the people that are, that are crucifying him. Who does that? 
He's hanging out with the drunkards. He's hanging out with the prostitutes. Why? Because God loves the world. Bible says, according to the Apostle Paul, here's a trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So, Jesus is the only way. Here's what the apostles taught in the book of Acts. We read, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? So this is why it's so important to share about Jesus, show the love of Jesus. People are getting locked out of heaven unless people are sharing about Jesus Christ. We'll move on. Number four, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. Um, Jesus died, number four, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. So you don't atone for your sins through purgatory. You don't atone for your sins and get into heaven through being reincarnated and being a good little bug. You can't do that. And work your way up to a higher life form and do good with second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Um, no, Jesus did everything for us. The Bible tells us this, that God, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we still screw up, what does the Bible tell us? Christ died for us. That's good news. That God, God loves us and that while we are still sinners, don't have to get perfect to be loved by God, just need to receive Jesus Christ, that he died for us. Bible tells us as well, Isaiah, according to the prophet Isaiah, it says this, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That means our sins, our crooked things in our life. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is Jesus Christ on the cross being prophesied about hundreds of years before it actually happened. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with, and with his wounds, we are healed. You are most fully alive when you receive Jesus Christ. You're most fully alive when you are a Christian. You're most fully alive when you come into contact with your Creator because you're His creation. And the Bible tells us that He loves us. And then furthermore, He paid the penalty for our sins. Psalms 103 says this is how He deals with it. Check this out. If you're a Christian, God's not angry with you. He deals with your sin like this. Psalms 103, 12-13 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his kids or his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him or trust Him. As a dad, when my kids screw up and do wrong, I don't constantly remind them of all their errors and shame them. God won't do that with you. Number five, what do you need to know? The Bible tells us all who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved. All who repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance means like you're, repentance means that you're turning away from your sin, your, your self, uh, uh, your disbelief, your frustration against God, any frustration that you have, you turn away from that, you repent, it means that you're turning, and then that you're walking towards, away from self, away from sin, and you're walking towards your Savior. And you and I should be repenting every day, all the time. Uh, because we're always, met, we're, always, we're always failing at some point or another. And so, the initial repentance, true repentance is always belief, turning away from that lifestyle, I'm going to turn towards my Savior. That first turn, that's where salvation occurs. Right in there. 
And then through the whole life, though, you can't stop. You got to keep saying, Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me for that. I should have done this. I didn't do that. That's what you, you do. And in that, the Bible tells us that when we repent, listen to this. The Bible tells us in Acts, and we're refreshed. It's like uh, you got a wound on your arm and you're not dealing with it. And somebody says, dude, you got to clean that thing out. Why? So you can get healed. So when we don't deal with our sin appropriately, we're not going to experience life. Uh, so the Bible says, Jesus said it like this. He says, the time is fulfilled. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. W what does that mean? God's playbook is being executed. That's exactly what's going on. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God in the flesh for the whole world to see who, who he is. He says the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign, it's all right now. And everybody's like, seriously? And then he says, yep, and here's what you need to do, repent. Turn from unbelief to belief. Trust in me. You believe and you receive the gospel, the good news. So what is the gospel? Let's do this. Let's read, I think, a great gospel statement. You know the gospel, but when somebody asks you, we get nervous and we're like, I don't know the gospel. Uh, so just quote this, John 3.16. Let's read it together. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What is gospel? What is good news about this? The good news is that God loves the whole world. He loves every person on the planet. He's loved you before you were ever born. He loves the creation that he made. The Bible says is good. He loves the whole world. He goes further to say that God gave. What did God give? God gave us life through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's something that you can just simply receive. It's a gift that you can have. Do you believe? Do you receive it? For God so loved, so, so loved that he gave. He's the one who gave it. All you have to do is receive it. The scripture continues to tell us, his son, whoever, whoever, who, whoever believes. doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your religious background and your past. It doesn't, regardless of your lifestyle, whoever, whoever. This is, this is the gospel for the criminal on the cross. When he says to Jesus, today, T today I'll see you. Whoever, whoever, whoever. So, all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. Here's the good news even getting better. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. We're going to jump to this passage. And this is so good for you. You need to hear these words to you every day. The Lord loves you. He cares for you. Even if you reject Him. Even if you scoff at Him. Even if you're in alignment with Him. Even if you're doing good and you're doing really great but you still screw up. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your what? Your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of us are soul fatigued. We're tired. We've been trying to do good, and we can't do good enough. Some of us are tired because we've been doing life our way, and the Bible tells us that 
We can find life in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for the church? It means two things. Number one is that you give your witness to Jesus Christ as Lord. Number one, what, are you, what is the mark of true Christianity? In my opinion, it's two things. That you're giving your witness right now. Meaning you're telling people that you're a Christian. Even when it's controversial. A witness is somebody who simply shares what they saw happen. If it's at a car accident or a police report, you just share what you saw. That's all you got to do. Uh, Christians right now need to be giving witness. You have a cross on your neck, tell them about Jesus Christ. You have a sticker on your car, tell them about your church. You're making decisions at work or in your family that are controversial and frustrating and people are asking questions. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Tell them about the authority of Scripture. Tell them the way you live and tell them why. You need to be a witness in the world. Here's what Jesus told his early followers in Acts chapter 1, he says this, but you will receive power, so you're going to have a power that's on high, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the what? The earth. This is why Christianity is the largest religion of the world. It's because people like you and me said, I'll be a witness. Why are people Christians? Why is it the largest religion of the world? Because people find life. Why are people Christians? Why is it the largest religion in the world? Because it actually makes more sense than anything else that we could possibly look at. Investigate everything. The claims of Christ are clear. It's overwhelming evidence. Number seven, I would challenge you to give generously to help spread the gospel. Help, help spread the good news of Jesus Christ. This is so important. This is why we do what we do. Um, what is the gospel? It's that God loves the world, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That He died so we can live. Uh, Paul talked about this partnership. Philippians 1, 3-5 says this, I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine that for you all making my prayer with joy because of your what? Partnership. In the gospel from the first day until now. What was Paul hinting at? He was hinting at the idea that they're partnered together. When you and I send money to a missionary, when you and I give money to our church, to the ministry, or to the mission efforts, what are we doing? We're partnering. We're partnering to do something really good. We're also honoring the Lord with our wealth. That's what the Bible says that we should do. But we're partnering and doing something really fantastic. Um, this, uh, in the last uh, months, uh, you know, the re Ukrainian crisis. You guys stepped up and gave in incredibly uh, to our partners, our Christian partners in Poland, to our Christian partners in ministries in Romania. You gave incredibly. And with all those thousands of people that they ministered to, these refugees, um, they were sharing and showing the love of Jesus Christ. And who was funding that? Our church. So can we celebrate that just for a moment? That's why we give. We partner with God's work around the world. Let's make a difference. Uh, the greatest marks of Christian maturity in my mind are being a witness because that's hard. You're playing out your cards in your workplace with your family, with your friends. You're telling them why you do what you do. Number two is your money. And the reason why is because money is an idol. Jesus said you can't serve both. You either serve me or you serve money. Who's your master? 
When you honor the Lord with your giving, what you're doing is actually is that you're prying and kicking away your idol and saying, I just want to use it for the glory of God. And there's nothing wrong with uh, enjoying the things that He's given you. The Bible tells us that. The gospel message isn't a lifestyle that you're signing up to for poverty. That's, that's, uh, those are monks. Those are folks that leave the world and have, take a vow of poverty. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach the other idea that if you give and you serve the Lord, you're going to be the most richest, wealthiest person in the whole world. That's a gospel of prosperity. The Bible does not teach that. If it did, then why did Jesus die broke? And why did all his disciples die broke? So, what does the Bible teach? The Bible says that you should be a steward. You're going you're to take everything that you receive, your time, your talent, your treasure, and say, all for you. I want to partner with you. I want to do good in my family. I want to do good in my community. I want to do good through my church. I want to help share and show the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would live it out. I pray that we would be strong and faithful in what you're doing in our world around us that we would take these truths and apply them into our life so that the people that we know will not be locked out. And for everybody here that is concerned about the eternal salvation, might this be the day that they say, Lord, I'll come to you. I don't want to be locked out of heaven. Might this be the day that they acknowledge their sin, they believe in you as Lord and confess you as the Lord of their life and experience eternal life. And for those in the room right now, if that's you, would you just pray with me silently just for a moment? Heavenly Father, today, as I think about this message, I want to acknowledge my sin, my shortcomings, and I believe in you, Jesus Christ, to be the forgiver of my sins. I believe in you to love me and accept me based on that simple faith step. I confess you today as my Lord and my Savior, I will live for you. I will be a witness. And I will be a partner to the work around the world to help share the good news of Jesus Christ. And for all of us, Lord, might we turn towards you day by day and thank you that your mercy is brand new every single day. We're grateful. We're thankful. And we take the responsibility to share and show the love of Christ to the world around us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Hey, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion. But before we do, I just want to share with you about our church and how we're doing um, financially and what's going on. Um, overall, we're wrapping up quarter two. Very job well done. The church has um, stayed below our expense plans and our income's just been slightly above. So that's something to celebrate. Good job. Um, so we're good. We're in a good position. However, there is a concerning trend I did want to make you aware of. And so um, that trend is this, is um, back in 2019, I'm going to pull up my notes and uh, read with you, uh, that back in 2019, we had 77% of our congregation was giving online. Um, that's a pretty high number. If you want to know part of the success of churches around the country, those that thrived were the people that said, no matter the hardship, no matter what happens, I'm going to be faithful to give to the Lord because I love Jesus and I love my church, so I'm going to give. 77% of you gave online uh, and reoccurring. It was awesome. 
Uh, then following up in 2020, you guys even went better and bigger. 96% of everybody at North Valley was giving online. So you can imagine our budgets were just strong and stable. Um, that was incredible. Now, of course, if you're smart, you're like, yeah, that's because it was like COVID lockdown. Nobody wanted to come to church, so we all watched online. That's great. I understand that. But what was sad, in 2021, it dipped to 88%. And now in 2022, we're down to 53% of our church gives online. And I understand there's a lot of joy in giving in a service financially. Um, but I would say this is remember that it's important not to just give under compulsion in a church service. Uh, just when your heart feels tugged. It's actually far more important for you to think about your giving intelligently and plan it with your spouse looking at your budget and then saying, how can we honor the Lord systematically and do it with a clear mind, a clear conscience, not reluctantly, but cheerfully? And how can we do it to give generously to the church so that this message in the name and fame of Jesus can keep going forth? And I would say online is helpful for us. If you love giving here at the church, on, in the giving box, please do so. I don't want to rob you of that joy. However, it helps us to manage our budget a lot better when it's all systematic. So um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump into communion. Lord, today as we move forward in our time of giving and uh, thank you for all those that have already given online. Thank you for those that want to take that step to do that uh, today or in the upcoming days. Uh, we want to honor and bless you and further our work for your name and fame. And Lord, for, as we get ready for communion, we pray for a fresh... Uh, uh, sense of your Holy Spirit to encourage us, to remind us, Lord, of the powerful truth that where sin uh, uh, is there and sin increases, grace abounds. And we receive this today in the mighty name of Jesus, the name above all names. Everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.